Section six of Historic Adventures Tales from American History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Historic Adventures Tales from American History by Rupert S. Holland. Chapter six, part two How the Young Republic Fought the Barbary Pirates. The brig Edwin, of Salem, Massachusetts, was sailing under full canvas through the Mediterranean Sea, bound out from Malta to Gibraltar on August 25, 1812. At her masthead she flew the stars and stripes. The weather was favoring, the little brig making good speed, and the Mediterranean offered no dangers to the skipper. Yet Captain George Smith and his crew of ten Yankee sailors kept constantly looking toward the south at some distant sails that had been steadily gaining on them since dawn. Every stitch of sail on the Edwin had been set, but she was being overhauled, and at this rate would be caught long before she could reach Gibraltar. Captain Smith and his men knew who manned those long, low, rakish-looking frigates, but the Edwin carried no cannon, and if they could not outsail the three ships to the south, they must yield peaceably or be shot down on their deck. Hour after hour they watched, and by sunset they could see the dark, swarthy faces of the leading frigate's crew. Before night, the Edwin had been overhauled, boarded, and the Yankee captain and sailors were in irons prisoners about to be sold into slavery they had been captured by one of the pirate crews of the day of algiers and when they were taken ashore by these buccaneers they were stood up in the slave market and sold to moors or put to work in shipyards other yankee crews had met with the same treatment now the united states had been paying its tribute regularly to the pirates. But in the spring of 1812, the day of Algiers suddenly woke up to the fact that the Americans had been measuring time by the sun, while the Moors figured it out by the moon, and found that in consequence he had been defrauded of almost a half year's tribute money, or $27,000. He sent an indignant message to Tobias Lear, the American consul in Algiers, threatening all sorts of punishments. And Mr. Lear, taking all things into account, decided it was best to pay the sum claimed by the day. The United States sent the extra tribute in the shape of merchandise by the sailing vessel Allegheny. But the day was now in a very bad temper and declared that the stores were of poor quality, and ordered the consul to leave at once in the Allegheny, as he would have no further dealings with a country that tried to cheat him. At almost the same time, he received a present from England of two large ships filled with stores of war, powder, shot, anchors, and cables. He immediately sent out word to the buccaneers to capture all the American ships they could, and sell the sailors in the slave markets. The day of Algiers appeared to have no fear of the United States. 
The truth of the matter was that His Highness the Dey, and also the Bay of Tunis, had been spoiled by England, who at this time told them confidently that the United States Navy was about to be wiped from the seas. English merchants assured them that they could treat Captain Smith and other Yankee skippers exactly as they pleased, since Great Britain had declared war on the United States, and the latter country would find herself quite busy at home. Algiers and Tripoli and Tunis, remembering their old grudge against the Americans, assured their English friends that nothing would delight them so much as to rid the Mediterranean of the stars and stripes. The pirates swept down on the brig Edwin and laid hands on every American they could find in the neighborhood. They stopped and boarded a ship flying the Spanish flag and took prisoner a Mr. Pollard of Virginia. Tripoli and Tunis permitted English cruisers to enter their harbors, contrary to the rules of war, and recapture four English prizes that had been sent to them by the American privateer Abellino. When the United States offered to pay a ransom of $3,000 for every American who was held as prisoner, the day replied that he meant to capture a large number of them before he would consider any terms of sale. Our country was young and poor, and our navy consisted of only 17 seaworthy ships, carrying less than 450 cannon. England was indeed mistress of the seas, with a great war fleet of a thousand vessels, armed with almost 28,000 guns. No wonder that the British consul at Algiers had told the day the American flag would be swept from the seas, the contemptible navy of the United States annihilated, and its maritime arsenals reduced to a heap of ruins. No wonder the day believed him. But as a matter of fact, the little David outfought the giant Goliath. On the Great Lakes and on the high seas, the stars and stripes waved triumphant after many a long and desperate encounter, and the small navy came out of the War of 1812 with a glorious record of victories, with splendid officers and crews, and with 64 ships. The English friends of the Barbary states had been mistaken, and Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli began to wish they had not been so scornful of the Yankees. It was time to show the pirates that Americans had as much right to trade in the Mediterranean as other people. On February 23, 1815, a few days after the Treaty of Peace with England was published, President Madison advised that we should send a fleet to Algiers. Two squadrons were ordered on this service, under command of Commodore William Bainbridge, one collected at Boston and the other at New York. Commodore Stephen Decatur was in charge of the latter division. Decatur's squadron was the first to sail, leaving New York on May 20, 1815. He had ten vessels in all, his flagship being the 44-gun frigate Guerriere, and his officers and crew being all seasoned veterans of the war with England. The fleet of the day of Algiers, however, was no mean foe. It consisted of twelve vessels, 
well-armed and manned, six sloops, five frigates, and one schooner. Its admiral was a very remarkable man, one of the fierce tribe of Kabyles from the mountains, Rice Hamida by name, who had made himself the scourge of the Mediterranean. He had plenty of reckless courage. Once he had boarded and captured in broad daylight a Portuguese frigate under the very cliffs of Gibraltar, and at another time, being in command of three Algerine frigates, had dared to attack a Portuguese ship of the line and three frigates in the face of the guns leveled at him from the rock of Lisbon, directly opposite. The city of Algiers itself was one of the best fortified ports on the Mediterranean. It lay in the form of a triangle, one side extending along the sea, while the other two rose against a hill, meeting at the top of the Kasbah, the historic fortress of the days. The city was guarded by very thick walls, mounted with many guns, and the harbor, made by a long mole, was commanded by heavy batteries, so that at least five hundred pieces of cannon could be brought to bear on any hostile ships trying to enter. Decatur's fleet was only a few days out of New York, when it ran into a heavy gale, and the wooden ships were badly tossed about. The Firefly, a twelve-gun brig, sprung her mast and had to put back to port. The other ships rode out the storm and kept on their course to the Azores, keeping a sharp watch for any suspicious-looking craft. As they neared the coast of Portugal, the vigilance was redoubled, for here was a favorite hunting ground of Rice Hamida, and Decatur knew what the Algerine admiral had done before the Rock of Lisbon. They found no trace of the enemy here, however. At Cadiz, Decatur sent a messenger to the American consul, who informed him that three Algerine frigates and some smaller ships had been spoken in the Atlantic Ocean, but were thought to have returned to the Mediterranean. Decatur wanted to take the enemy by surprise, and so sailed cautiously to Tangier, where he learned that two days earlier, Rice Hamida had gone through the Straits of Gibraltar in the 46-gun frigate Mashuda. The American captain at once set sail for Gibraltar and found out there that the wily Algerine was lying off Cape Gata, having demanded that Spain should pay him half a million dollars of tribute money to protect her coast towns from attack by his fleet. Lookouts on the Guerriere reported to Decatur that a dispatch boat had left Gibraltar as soon as the American ships appeared, and inquiry led the captain to believe the boat was bearing messages to Rice Hamida. Other boats were sailing for Algiers, and Decatur, realizing the ease with which his wily opponent, thoroughly familiar with the inland sea, would be able to elude him, decided to give chase at once. The fleet headed up the Mediterranean June 15th, under full sail. The next evening ships were seen near shore, 
and Decatur ordered the frigate Macedonian and two brigs to overhaul them. Early the following morning, when the fleet was about 20 miles out from Cape Gata, Captain Gordon of the frigate Constellation sighted a big vessel flying the flag of Algiers and signaled an enemy to the southeast. Decatur saw that the strange ship had a good start of his fleet and was within 30 hours' run of Algiers. He suspected that her captain might not have detected the fleet as American and ordered the constellation back to her position abeam of his flagship, gave directions to try to conceal the identity of his squadron, and stole up on the stranger. The latter was seen to be a frigate lying to under small sail, as if waiting for some message from the African shore near at hand. One of the commanders asked permission to give chase, but Decatur signaled back, do nothing to excite suspicion. The Moorish frigate held her position near shore, while the American ships drew closer. When they were about a mile distant, a quartermaster on the constellation, by mistake, hoisted a United States flag. To cover this blunder, the other ships were immediately ordered to fly English flags. But the crew of the Moorish frigate had seen the flag on the constellation and instantly swarmed out on the yardarms and had the sails set for flight. They were splendid seamen, and almost immediately the frigate was leaping under all her canvas for Algiers. The Americans were busy, too. The rigging of each ship was filled with sailors, working out on the yards, and the decks rang with commands, and messages were signaled from the flagship to the captains. Decatur crowded on all sail, fearing that the Algerine frigate might escape him in the night or seek refuge in some friendly harbor, and the American squadron raced along at top speed just as the Barbary pirates had earlier chased after the little brig Edwin of Salem. Soon the constellation, which was to the south of the fleet, and so nearest to the Moorish frigate, opened fire and sent several shots on board the enemy. The latter immediately came about and headed northeast, as if making for the port of Carthagena. The Americans also tacked, and gained by this maneuver. The sloop Ontario, cutting across the moor's course, and the guerriere being brought close enough for musketry fire. As the flagship came to close quarters, the moors opened fire, wounding several men. But Decatur waited until his ship cleared the enemy's yardarms, when he ordered a broadside. The crew of the Algerine frigate, which was the Mashuda, were mowed down by this heavy fire. Rice Hamida himself had already been wounded by one of the first shots from the constellation. He had, however, insisted on continuing to give orders from a couch on the quarter-deck, but a shot from the first broadside killed him. The Guerrier's gun crews loaded and fired again before the first smoke had cleared. At the second broadside, one of her largest guns exploded, killing three men, wounding seventeen, 
and splintering the spar deck. The Moors made no sign of surrender, but Decatur, seeing that there were too few left to fight, and not wishing to pour another broadside into them, sailed past, and took a position just out of range. The Algerine immediately tried to run before him. In doing this, the Mashuda was brought directly against the little 18-gun American brig Epervier, commanded by John Downs. Instead of sailing away, Downs placed his brig under the Moors' cabin ports, and by backing and filling, escaped colliding with the frigate while he fired his small broadsides at her. This running fire, lasting for twenty-five minutes, finished the Moors' resistance, and the frigate surrendered. The flagship, the Guerriere, now took charge of the Algerine prize, and Decatur sent an officer, two midshipmen, and a crew on board her. The Mashuda was a sorry sight, many of her men killed or wounded, and her decks splintered by the American broadsides. The prisoners were transferred to the other ships, and orders were given to the prize crew to take the captured frigate to the port of Carthagena, under escort of the Macedonian. Before this was done, however, Decatur signaled all the officers to meet on his flagship. In the cabin they found a table covered with captured Moorish weapons, daggers, pistols, scimitars, and yatagans. Decatur turned to Commandant Downs, who had handled the small Epervier so skillfully. As you were fortunate in obtaining a favorable position, and maintained it so handsomely, you shall have the first choice of these weapons, he said. Downs chose, and then each of the other officers selected a trophy of the victory. That evening, the squadron, leaving the Mashuda in charge of the Macedonian, resumed its hunt for other ships belonging to the navy of the piratical day. The fleet was arriving off Cape Palos on June 19th, when a brig was seen, looking suspiciously like an Algerine craft. When the American set sail toward her, the stranger ran away. Soon she came to shoal water, and the frigates had to leave the chase to the light draft a pervier, spark, torch, and spitfire. These followed and opened fire. The strange brig returned several shots, and was then run aground by her crew, on the coast between the watchtowers of Estacio and Albufera, which had been built long before for the purpose of protecting fishermen and peasants from the raids of pirates. The strangers took to their small boats. One of these was sunk by a shot. The Americans then boarded the ship, which was the Algerine 22-gun brig Estadio, and captured 83 prisoners. The brig was floated off the shoals and sent with a prize crew into the Spanish port of Carthagena. Decatur, being unable to sight any more ships that looked like Moorish craft, and supposing that the rest of the pirate fleet would probably be making for Algiers, gave commands to his squadron to sail for that port. He was determined to bring the day to terms as quickly as possible, and to destroy his fleet or bombard the city if that was necessary. 
When he arrived off the Moorish town, however, he found none of the fleet there, and no apparent preparation for war in the harbor. The next morning he ran up the Swedish flag at the mainmast, and a white flag at the foremast, a signal asking the Swedish consul to come on board the flagship. Mr. Nordling, the consul, came out to the guerriere, accompanied by the Algerine captain of the port. After some conversation, Decatur asked the latter for news of the day's fleet. By this time it is safe in some neutral port, was the assured answer. Not all of it, said Decatur, for we have captured the Mashuda and the Estadio. The Algerine could not believe this, and told the Americans so. Then Decatur sent for a wounded lieutenant of the Mashuda, who was on his ship, and bade him confirm the statement. The Moorish officer of the port immediately changed his tactics, dropped his haughty attitude, and gave Decatur to understand that he thought the day would be willing to make a new treaty of peace with the United States. Decatur handed the Moor a letter from the president to the day, which stated that the Republic would only agree to peace provided Algiers would give up her claim to tribute and would cease molesting American merchantmen. The Moor wanted to gain as much time as possible, hoping his fleet would arrive, and said that it was the custom to discuss all treaties in the palace on shore. Decatur understood the slow and crafty methods of these people, and answered that the treaty should be drawn up and signed on board the guerriere, or not at all. Seeing that there was no use in arguing with the American, the Moorish officer went ashore to consult with the day. Next day, June 30th, the captain of the port returned, with power to act for His Highness Omar Pasha. Decatur told him that he meant to put an end to these piratical attacks on Americans, and insisted that all his countrymen, who were being held as slaves in Algiers, should be given up, that the value of goods taken from them should be paid them, that the day should give the owners of the brig Edwin of Salem $10,000, that all Christians who escaped from Algiers to American ships should be free, and that the two nations should act toward each other exactly as other civilized countries did. Then the Moorish officer began to explain and argue. He said that it was not the present ruling day. Omar Pasha, called Omar the Terrible, because of his great courage, who had attacked American ships. It was Haji Ali, who was called the Tiger, because of his cruelty. But he had been assassinated in March, and his prime minister, who succeeded him, had been killed the following month. And Omar Pasha was a friend of the United States. Decatur replied that his terms for peace could not be altered. The Moor then asked for a truce while he should go ashore and confer with the day. Decatur said he would grant no truce. The Algerine besought him to make no attack for three hours. Not a minute, answered Decatur. If your squadron appears before the treaty is actually signed by the day, and before the American prisoners are sent aboard, I will capture it. The Moorish captain said he would hurry at once to the day, and added 
that if the American should see his boat heading out to the Guerriere with a white flag in the bow, they would know that Omar Pasha had agreed to Decatur's terms. An hour later, the Americans sighted an Algerine warship coming from the east. Decatur signaled his fleet to clear for action and gave orders to his own men on the Guerriere. The fleet had hardly weighed anchor, however, before the small boat of the port captain was seen dashing out from shore, a white flag in the bow. The excited Moor waved to the crew of the flagship. As soon as the boat was near enough, Decatur asked if the day had signed the treaty and set the American captives free. The captain assured him of this, and a few minutes later, his boat was alongside the flagship, and the Americans, who had been seized and held by the pirates, were given over to their countrymen. Some of them had been slaves for several years, and their delight knew no bounds. In so short a time did Decatur succeed in bringing the day to better terms than he had made with any other country. When the treaty had been signed, the day's prime minister said to the English consul, with reproach in his voice, you told us that the Americans would be swept from the seas in six months by your navy, and now they make war upon us with some of your own vessels, which they have taken. As a fact, three of the ships in Decatur's squadron had actually been won from the English in the War of 1812. The Epervier, commanded by Lieutenant John Templer Shubrick, was now ordered to return to the United States with some of the Americans rescued from Algiers. The fate of the brig is one of the mysteries of the sea. She sailed through the Straits of Gibraltar July 12, 1815, and was never heard of again. She is supposed to have been lost in a heavy storm in which a number of English merchantmen foundered near the West Indies. Algiers had now been brought to her knees by Decatur, and he was free to turn to Tunis and Tripoli. The rulers of each of these countries had been misled by the English agents exactly as had the day of Algiers, and the Bay of Tunis had allowed the British cruiser Lyra to recapture some English prizes that the American privateer Abellino had taken into harbor during the War of 1812. Like Algiers, both Tunis and Tripoli were well protected by fleets and imposing forts. Decatur, however, had now learned that downright and prompt measures were the ones most successful in dealing with the Moors, who were used to long delays and arguments. He anchored off Tunis on July 26th, and immediately sent word to the bay that the latter must pay the United States $46,000 for allowing the English Lyra to seize the American prizes, and that the money must be paid within 12 hours. The United States consul, Mordecai M. Noah, carried Decatur's message to the bay. The Moorish ruler was seated on a pile of cushions at a window of his palace, combing his long flowing black beard with a tortoise-shell comb set with diamonds. Mr. Noel politely stated Decatur's terms. Tell your admiral to come and see me, said the bay. He declines coming, your highness, answered the consul. 
until these disputes are settled, which are best done on board the ship. The bay frowned, but this is not treating me with becoming dignity. Hamuda Pasha, of blessed memory, commanded them to land and wait at the palace until he was pleased to receive them. Very likely, your highness, said Mr. Noah. But that was twenty years ago. The bay considered. I know this admiral, he remarked at length. He is the same one who in the war with Sidi Yusuf burned the frigate. He referred to Decatur's burning the Philadelphia in the earlier warfare. The consul nodded. The same. Hum, said the bay. Why do they send wild young men to treat for peace with old powers? Then you Americans do not speak the truth. You went to war with England, a nation with a great fleet, and said you took her frigates in equal fight. Honest people always speak the truth. Well, sir, and that was true. Do you see that tall ship in the bay flying a blue flag? The consul pointed through the window. It is the guerriere, taken from the British. That one near the small island, the Macedonian, was also captured by Decatur on equal terms. The sloop near Cape Carthage, the Peacock, was also taken in battle. The bay, looking through his telescope, saw a small vessel leave the American fleet and approach the forts. A man appeared to be taking soundings. The bay laid down the telescope. I will accept the admiral's terms, said he, and resumed the combing of his beard. Later he received Decatur with a great show of respect. The American consul was also honored. But the British was not treated so well. When a brother of the prime minister paid the money over to Decatur, the Moor turned to the Englishman and said, you see, sir, what Tunis is obliged to pay for your insolence. You should feel ashamed of the disgrace you have brought upon us. I ask you if you think it just, first, to violate our neutrality, and then to leave us to be destroyed or pay for your aggressions. Having settled matters with Tunis, Decatur sailed for Tripoli, and there sent his demands to the Pasha. He asked $30,000 in payment were two American prizes of war that had been recaptured by the British cruiser Paulina, a salute of 31 guns to be fired from the Pasha's palace in honor of the United States flag, and that the treaty of peace be signed on board the Guerriere. The Pasha pretended to be offended, summoned his 20,000 Arab soldiers, and manned his cannon. But when he heard how Algiers and Tunis had already made peace with Decatur, and saw that the Americans were all prepared for battle, he changed his tactics, and sent the governor of Tripoli to the flagship to treat for peace. The American consul told Decatur that $25,000 would make good the lost prize ships, but that the Pasha was holding ten Christians as slaves in Tripoli. Decatur thereupon reduced the amount of his claim on condition that the slaves should be released. This was agreed to. The prisoners, two of whom were Danes, and the others Sicilians, were sent to the flagship, 
and by way of compliment the band of the guerriere went ashore and played american airs to the delight of the people the american captain now ordered the rest of his squadron to sail to gibraltar while the guerriere landed the prisoners at sicily as the flagship came down the coast from carthagena she met that part of the algerine fleet that had put into malta when the americans first arrived in the mediterranean the guerriere was alone and decatur thought that the moors finding him at such a disadvantage might break the treaty of peace and attack him he called his men to the quarter-deck my lads said he those fellows are approaching us in a threatening manner we have whipped them into a treaty and if the treaty is to be broken let them break it be careful of yourselves let any man fire without orders at the peril of his life but let them fire first if they will and we'll take the whole of them the decks were cleared and every man stood ready for action the fleet of seven algerine ships sailed close to the single american frigate in line of battle the crews looked across the bulwarks at each other but not a word was said until the last algerine ship was opposite where are you going demanded the moorish admiral wherever it pleases me answered decatur and the guerriere sailed on her course early in october there was a great gathering of american ships at gibraltar captain bainbridge's fleet which included the seventy-four gun ship of the line independence was there when decatur arrived the war between the united states and england was only recently ended and the presence of so many ships of the young republic at the english rock of gibraltar caused much talk among the spaniards and other foreigners the sight of ships which had been english but which were now american added to the awkward situation and more than one duo was fought on the rock as the result of disputes over the war of eighteen twelve the day of algiers left to his own advisers and to the whispers of men who were jealous of the united states success began to wish he had not agreed to the treaty he had made with decatur his own people told him that a true son of the prophet should never have humbled himself before the christian dogs in addition the english government agreed to pay him nearly four hundred thousand dollars to ransom twelve thousand prisoners of naples and sardinia that he was holding before everything else the day was greedy therefore when captain oliver hazard perry the hero of the battle of lake erie brought out in the java a copy of the treaty after it had been ratified by the united states senate and it was presented to the day by the american consul william shaler the ruler of algiers pretended that the united states had changed the treaty and complained of the way in which decatur had dealt with the algerine ships next day he refused to meet mr shaler again and sent the treaty back to him saying that the americans were unworthy of his confidence 
Mr. Shaler hauled down the flag at his consulate and boarded the Java. Fortunately, there were five American ships near Algiers, and these were made ready to open fire on the Moorish vessels in the harbor. Plans were also made for a night attack. The small boats of the fleet were divided into two squadrons to be filled by 1,200 volunteer sailors. One division was to make for the water battery and try to spike its guns, while the other was to attack the batteries on shore. Scaling ladders were ready, and the men were provided with boarding spikes. But shortly before they were to embark, the captain of a French ship in the harbor got word of the plan and carried the information to the day. The latter was well frightened and immediately sent word that he would do whatever his good friends from America wanted. The next day Mr. Shaler landed again, and the day signed the treaty. The fleet then called a second time on the Bay of Tunis, who had been grumbling about his dissatisfaction with Decatur's treatment. He, too, however, was most friendly when American warships poked their noses toward his palace. After that, the Barbary pirates let American merchantmen trade in peace, although an American squadron of four ships was kept in the Mediterranean to see that the Dey and the Bay and the Pasha did not forget and go back to their old tricks. So it was that Decatur put an end to the African pirates, so far as the United States was concerned, and taught them that sailors of the young republic, far away though it was, were not to be made slaves by greedy Moorish rulers. End of section 6